Section 3 of The Descent of Man, Part 3. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by John Hogarth. The Descent of Man, Part 3 by Charles Darwin. Chapter 20. Secondary Sexual Characters of Man Continued. On the effects of the continued selection of women, according to a different standard of beauty in each race, on the causes which interfere with sexual selection in civilized and savage nations, conditions favorable to sexual selection during primeval times, on the manner of action of sexual selection with mankind, on the women in savage tribes having some power to choose their husbands, absence of hair on the body, and development of the beard, color of the skin, summary. We have seen in the last chapter with all barbarous races ornaments, dress and external appearance are highly valued, and that the men judge of the beauty of their women by widely different standards. We must next inquire whether this preference and the consequent selection during many generations of those women, which appear to the men of each race the most attractive, has altered the character either of the females alone or of both sexes. With mammals, the general rule appears to be that characters of, of all kind are inherited equally by the males and females. We might therefore expect that with mankind, any characters gained by the females or by the males through sexual selection would commonly be transferred to the offspring of both sexes. If any change has thus been effected, it is almost certain that the different races would be differently modified, as each has its own standard of beauty. With mankind, especially with savages, Many causes interfere with the action of sexual selection as far as the bodily frame is concerned. Civilized men are largely attracted by the mental charms of women, by their wealth, and especially by their social position. For men rarely marry into a much lower rank. The men who succeed in obtaining the more beautiful women will not have a better chance of leaving a long line of descendants than other men with plainer wives. Save the few who bequeath their fortunes according to primogeniture, with respect to the opposite form of selection, namely, of the more attractive men by the women. Although in civilized nations, women have free or almost free choice, which is not the case with barbarous races, yet their choice is largely influenced by the social position and wealth of the men, and the success of the latter in life depends much on the intellectual powers and energy, or on the fruits of these same powers and their forefathers. No excuse is needed for treating this subject in some detail. For, as the German philosopher Schopenhauer remarks, the final aim of all love intrigues, be they comic or tragic, is really of more importance than all other ends in human life. What it all turns upon is nothing less than the composition of the next generation. It is not the weal or woe of any one individual, but that of the human race to come, which is here at stake. There is, however, reason to believe that in certain civilized and semi-civilized nations, Sexual selection has affected something in modifying the bodily frame of some of the members. Many persons are convinced, as it appears to me with justice, that our aristocracy, including under this term, all wealthy families in which primogeniture has long prevailed, from having chosen during many generations from all classes the more beautiful women as their wives, have become handsomer, according to the European standard, than the middle classes. Yet the middle classes are placed under equally favorable conditions of life for the perfect development of the body. Cook remarks that the superiority in personal appearance 
which is observable in the Erie's or Nobles and all the other islands of the Pacific, is found in the Sandwich Islands, but this may be chiefly due to their better food and manner of life. The old traveler Chardin, in describing the Persians, says their blood is now highly refined by frequent intermixtures with the Georgians and Circassians, two nations which surpass all the world in personal beauty. There is hardly a man of rank in Persia who is not born of a Georgian or Circassian mother. He adds that they inherit their beauty, not from their ancestors, for without the above mixture, the men of rank in Persia, who are descendants of the Tartars, would be extremely ugly. These quotations are taken from Lawrence, who attributes the beauty of the upper classes in England to the men having long selected the more beautiful women. Here is a more curious case. The priestesses who attended the temple of Venus Erisina at San Giuliano in Sicily were selected for their beauty out of the whole of Greece. They were not vestal virgins and quadrophages, who states the foregoing fact, says that the women of San Giuliano are now famous as the most beautiful in the island, and are sought by artists as models. But it is obvious that the evidence in all the above cases is doubtful. The following case, though, relating to the savages, is well worth giving for its curiosity. Mr. Winwood Reed informs me that the Jolofs, a tribe of Negroes on the west coast of Africa, are remarkable for their uniformly fine appearance. A friend of his asked one of these men, How is it that every one of the, whom I meet is so fine-looking? Not only your men, but your women. The Jolof answered, It is very easily explained. It has always been our custom to pick out our worst-looking slaves and to sell them. It need hardly be added that with all the savages, female slaves serve as concubines. That this negro should be attributed, whether rightly or wrongly, the fine appearance of his tribe to the long-continued elimination of the ugly women is not so surprising as it may at first appear. That this negro should have attributed, whether rightly or wrongly, the fine appearance of his tribe to the long-continued elimination of the ugly women is not so surprising as it may at first appear, for I have elsewhere shown that negroes fully appreciate the importance of selection in the breeding of their domestic animals, and I could give from Mr. Reed additional evidence on this head. The causes which prevent or check the action of sexual selection with savages. The chief causes are, first, so-called communal marriages or promiscuous intercourse. Secondly, the consequences of female infanticide. Thirdly, early betrothals. And lastly, the low estimation in which women are held as mere slaves. These four points must be considered in some detail. It is obvious that as long as the pairing of man or of any other animal is left to mere chance, with no choice exerted by either sex, there can be no sexual selection, and no effect will be produced on the offspring by certain individuals having had an advantage over others in their courtship. Now it is asserted that there exist at the present-day tribes which practice what Sir J. Lubbock by courtesy calls communal marriages, that is, all the men and women in the tribe are husbands and wives are to one another. The licentiousness of many savages is no doubt astonishing, but it seems to me that more evidence is requisite before we fully admit that their intercourse is in any case promiscuous. Nevertheless, all those who have most closely studied the subject, Sir J. Lubbock, Mr. Malenin, in his extremely valuable work on primitive marriage, speaks of the union of the sexes in the earliest times as loose, transitory, and in some degree promiscuous. 
Mr. Malenin and Sir J. Lubbock have collected much evidence on the extreme licentiousness of savages at the present time. Mr. L. H. Morgan, in his interesting memoir of the classificatory system of relationship, concludes that polygamy and all forms of marriage during primeval times were essentially unknown. It appears also from Sir J. Lubbock's work that Bakofin likewise believes that communal intercourse originally prevailed, and whose judgment is worth much more than mine believe that communal marriage was the original and universal form throughout the world, including therein the intermarriage of brothers and sisters. The late Sir A. Smith, who had traveled widely in South Africa and knew much about the habits of savages there and elsewhere, expressed to me the strongest opinion that no races exist in which women is considered as a property of the community. I believe that his judgment was largely determined by what is implied by the term marriage. Throughout the following discussion, I use the term in the same sense as when naturalists speak of animals as monogamous, meaning thereby that the male is accepted by or chooses a single female and lives with her either during the breeding season or for the whole year, keeping possession of her by the law of might, or as when they speak of a polygamous species, meaning that the male lives with several females. This kind of marriage is all that concerns us here, as it suffices for the work of sexual selection but I know that some of the writers above referred to imply by the term marriage a recognized right protected by the tribe. The indirect evidence in favor of the belief of the former prevalence of communal marriages is strong, and rests chiefly on the terms of relationship which are employed between the members of the same tribe, implying a connection with the tribe, and not with either parent. But the subject is too large and complex for even an abstract to be given here, and I will confine myself to a few remarks. It is evident in the case of such marriages, or when the marriage tie is very loose, that the relationship of the child to its father cannot be known. But it seems almost incredible that the relationship of the child to its mother should ever be completely ignored, especially as the women in most savage tribes nurse their infants for a long time. Accordingly, in many cases, the lines of descent are traced through the mother alone, to the exclusion of the father. But in other cases, the terms employed express a connection with the tribe alone, to the exclusion even of the mother. It seems possible that the connection between the related members of the same barbarous tribe, exposed to all sorts of danger, might be so much more important, owing to the need of mutual protection and aid, than that between the mother and her child, as to lead to the sole use of terms expresses of the former relationships. But Mr. Morgan is convinced that this view is by no means sufficient. The terms of relationship used in different parts of the world may be divided, according to the author just quoted, into two great classes, the classificatory and descriptive, the latter being employed by us. It is the classificatory system which so strongly leads to the belief that communal and other extremely loose forms of marriage were originally universal. But as far as I can see, there is no necessity on this ground for believing in absolutely promiscuous intercourse and I am glad to find that this is Sir J. Lubbock's view. Men and women, like many of the lower animals, might formerly have entered into strict, though temporary, unions for each birth, and in this case, nearly as much confusion would have arisen in the terms of relationships as in the case of promiscuous intercourse. As far as sexual selection is concerned, all that is required is that choice should be exerted before the parents unite, and it signifies little whether the unions last for life or only for a season. Besides the evidence derived from the terms of relationship, 
Other lines of reasoning indicate the former wide prevalence of communal marriage. Sergei Lubbock accounts for the strange and widely extended habit of exogamy, that is, by the men of one tribe taking wives from a distinct tribe, by communism having been the original form of intercourse, so that a man never obtained a wife for himself, unless he captured her from a neighboring and hostile tribe, and then she would naturally have become his sole and valuable property. Thus a practice of capturing wives might have arisen, and from the honor so gained, it might ultimately have become the universal habit. According to Sir J. Lubbock, we can also thus understand the necessity of expiation for marriage as an infringement of tribal rights. Since according to old ideas, a man had no right to appropriate it to himself that which belonged to the whole tribe. Sir J. Lubbock further gives a curious body of facts shewing that in an old times high harbor was bestowed on women who were utterly licentious. And this, as he explains, is intelligible. If we admit that promiscuous intercourse was the aboriginal and therefore a long-revered custom of the tribe and the several works above quoted, there will be found copious evidence on relationship through the females alone or with the tribes alone. Although the manner of development of the marriage tie is an obscure subject, as we may infer from the divergent opinions on several points between the three authors who have studied it most clearly, namely Mr. Morgan, Mr. Malenin, and Sir J. Labach. Yet from the foregoing and several other lines of evidence, it seems probable against the views held by these three writers on the former prevalence of almost promiscuous intercourse. And he thinks that the classificatory system of relationship can be otherwise explained, that the habit of marriage in any strict sense of the word has been gradually developed and that almost promiscuous or very loose intercourse was once extremely common throughout the world. Nevertheless, from the strength of the feeling of jealousy all through the animal kingdom, as well as from the analogy of the lower animals, more particularly of those which come nearest to man, I cannot believe that absolutely promiscuous intercourse prevailed in times past, shortly before man attained to his present rank in the zoological scale. Man, as I have attempted to shew, is certainly descended from some ape-like creature. With the existing quadrumana, as far as their habits are known, the males of some species are monogamous, but live during only a part of the year with the females. Of this, the orang seems to afford an instance. Several kinds, for example, some of the Indian and American monkeys, are strictly monogamous, and associate all year round with their wives. Others are polygamous, for example, the gorilla and several American species and each family lives separate. Even when this occurs, the families inhabiting the same district are probably somewhat social. The chimpanzee, for instance, is occasionally met with in large bands. Again, other species are polygamous, but several males, each with his own females, live associated in, in a body. As with several species of baboons, says Cynocephalus hamadryas, lives in great troops containing twice as many adult females as adult males. See Renger on American polygamous species and Owen on American monogamish species. Other references might be added. We may indeed conclude from what we know of the jealousy of all male quadrupeds, armed as many of them are, with special weapons for battling with their rivals, that promiscuous intercourse in a state of nature is extremely improbable. The pairing may not last for life, but only for each birth. Yet if the males which are the strongest and best able to defend or otherwise assist their females and young, were to select the more attractive females, this would suffice for sexual selection. 
Therefore, looking far enough back in the stream of time and judging from the social habits of man as he now exists, the most probable view is that he aboriginally lived in small communities, each with a single wife, or if powerful with several, whom he jealously guarded against all other men. Or he may not have been a social animal and yet have lived with several wives like the gorilla. For all the natives agree that but one adult male is seen in a band. When the young male grows up, a contest takes place for mastery, and the strongest, by killing and driving out the others, establishes himself as the head of the community. The younger males, being thus expelled and wandering about, would, when at a successful in finding a partner, prevent too close interbreeding within the limits of the same family. Although savages are now extremely licentious, and although communal marriages may formerly have largely prevailed, yet many tribes practice some form of marriage, but of a far more lax nature than that of a civilized nations. Polygamy, as just stated, is almost universally followed by the leading men in every tribe. Nevertheless, there are tribes, standing almost at the bottom of the scale, which are strictly monogamous. This is the case with the Vidas of Ceylon. They have a saying, according to Sergei Labak, that death alone that separate husband and wife, an intelligent Kandyan chief, of course a polygamist, was perfectly scandalized at the utter barbarism of living with only one wife, and never parting until separated by death. It was, he said, just like the Wanderoo monkeys. Whether savages who now enter into the same form of marriage, either polygamous or monogamous, have retained this habit from primeval times, or whether they have returned to some form of marriage after passing through a stage of promiscuous intercourse, I will not pretend to conjecture. Infanticide. This practice is now very common throughout the world, and there is a reason to believe that it prevailed much more extensively during former times. Barbarians find it difficult to support themselves and their children, and it is a simple plan to kill their infants. In South America, some tribes, according to Azara, formerly destroyed so many infants of both sexes that they were on the point of extinction. In the Polynesian islands, women have been known to kill from four or five to even ten of their children, and Ellis could not find a single woman who had not killed at least one. In a village on the eastern frontier of India, Colonel McCullough found not a single female child. Wherever infanticide prevails, the struggle for existence will be in so far less severe and all the members of the tribe will have an almost equally good chance of rearing their few surviving children. In most cases, a large number of female than of male infants are destroyed, for it is obvious that the latter are of more value to the tribe, as they will, when grown up, aid in defending it and can support themselves. But the trouble experienced by the women in rearing children, their consequent loss of beauty, the higher estimation set on them when few, and their happier fate, are assigned by the women themselves and by various observers as additional motives for infanticide. When owing to female infanticide, the women of a tribe were few. The habit of capturing wives from neighboring tribes would naturally arise. Sir J. Lebac, however, as we have seen, attributes the practice in chief part to the former existence of communal marriage and to the men having consequently captured women from other tribes to hold as their sole property. Additional causes might be assigned, such as the communities being very small, in which case, marriageable women would often be deficient. That the habit was most extensively practiced during former times, 
even by the ancestors of civilized nations, is clearly shown by the preservation of many curious customs and ceremonies, of which Mr. Malenin has given an interesting account. In her own marriages, the best man seems originally to have been the chief abettor of the bridegroom in the act of capture. Now as long as men habitually procured their wives through violence and craft, they would have been glad to seize on any woman, and would not have selected the more attractive ones. But as soon as a practice of procuring wives from a distinct tribe was effected through barter, as now occurs in many places, the more attractive women would generally have been purchased. The incessant crossing, however, between tribe and tribe, which necessarily follows from any form of this habit, would tend to keep all people inhabiting the same country nearly uniform in character, and this would interfere with the power of sexual selection in differentiating. The scarcity of women consequent on female infanticide leads also to another practice, that of polyandry, still common in several parts of the world, in which formerly, as Mr. Malenin believes, prevailed almost universally. But this latter conclusion is doubled by Mr. Morgan and Sir J. Lebach. Whenever two or more men are compelled to marry one woman, it is certain that all the other women of the tribe will get married, and there will be no selection by the men of the most attractive women. But under these circumstances, the women no doubt will have the power of choice, and will prefer the more attractive man. Azara, for instance, describes how carefully a guana woman bargains for all sorts of privileges, before accepting some one or more husbands, and the men in consequence take unusual care of their personal appearance. So amongst the Todas of India, who practice polyandry, the girls can accept or refuse any man. A very ugly man in these cases would perhaps altogether fail in getting a wife, or get one later in life. But the handsomer man, although more successful in obtaining wives, would not, as far as we can see, leave more offspring to inherit their beauty than the less handsome husbands of the same women. Early Betrothals and Slavery of Women With many savages, it is a custom to betroth the females whilst mere infants, and this would effectually prevent preference being exerted on either side according to personal appearance. But it would not prevent the more attractive women from being afterwards stolen or taken by force from their husbands by the more powerful men. And this often happens in Australia, America, and elsewhere. The same consequences with reference to sexual selection would be a certain extent follow, when women are valued almost solely as slaves or beasts of burden, as is the case with many savages. The men, however, at all times would prefer the handsomest slaves according to their standard of beauty. We thus see that several customs prevail with savages, which must greatly interfere with or completely stop the action of sexual selection. On the other hand, the conditions of life to which savages are exposed are some of their habits, are favorable to natural selection, and this comes into play at the same time with sexual selection. Savages are known to suffer severely from recurrent famines. They do not increase their food by artificial means. They rarely refrain from marriage. Birchall says that among the wild nations of southern Africa, neither men nor women ever pass their lives in a state of celibacy. Azara makes precisely the same remark in regard to the wild Indians of South America, and generally marry it whilst young. Consequently, they must be subjected to occasional hard struggles for existence, and the favored individuals will alone survive. At a very early period, before man attained to his present rank in the scale, many of his conditions would be different from what now obtains amongst savages. 
Judging from the analogy of the lower animals, he would then either live with a single female or be a polygamist. The most powerful and able males would succeed best in obtaining attractive males. They would also succeed best in the general struggle for life and in defending their females as well as their offspring from enemies of all kinds. At this early period, the ancestors of man would not be sufficiently advanced in intellect to look forward to distant contingencies. They would not foresee that the rearing of all their children, especially their female children, would make the struggle for life severe for the tribe. They would be governed more by their instincts and less by their reason than they are savages at the present day. They would not at that period have partially lost one of the strongest of all instincts, common to all lower animals, namely the love of their young offspring, and consequently they would not have practiced female infanticide. Women would not have been thus rendered scarce, and polyandry would not have been practiced, for hardly any other cause except the scarcity of women seems sufficient to break down the natural and widely prevalent feeling of jealousy, and the desire of each male to possess a female for himself. Polyandry would be a natural stepping stone to communal marriages or almost promiscuous intercourse. Though the best authorities believe that this latter habit preceded polyandry, during primordial times there would be no early betrothals, for this implies foresight, nor would women be valued merely as useful slaves or beasts of burthen. Both sexes, if the females as well as the males were permitted to exert any choice, would choose their partners not from mental charms or property or social position, but almost solely from external appearance. All the adults would marry or pair, and all the offspring, as far as that was possible, would be reared, so that the struggle for existence would be periodically excessively severe. Thus, during these times, all the conditions for sexual selection would have been more favorable than at a later period, when the man had advanced in his intellectual powers, but not retrograded in his instincts. Therefore, whatever influence sexual selection may have had in producing the differences between the races of man, and between man and the higher quadrumana, this influence would have been more powerful at a remote period than at the present day, though probably not yet wholly lost. The Manner of Action of Sexual Selection with Mankind With primeval man under the favorable conditions just stated, and with those savages who at the present time enter into a marriage tie, sexual selection has probably acted in the following manner, subject to greater or less interference from female infanticide, early betrothals, etc. The strongest and most vigorous men, those who could best defend and hunt for their families, who were provided with the best weapons and possessed the most property, such as a large number of dogs or other animals, would succeed in rearing a greater average number of offspring than the weaker and poorer members of the same tribes. There can also be no doubt that such men would generally be able to select the more attractive women. At present, the chiefs of nearly every tribe throughout the world succeed in obtaining more than one wife. I hear from Mr. Mantell that, until recently, almost every girl in New Zealand who was pretty, or promised to be pretty, was tapu to some chief. With the Kaffirs, as Mr. C. Hamilton states, the chiefs generally have the pick of the women for many miles round, and are most persevering in establishing or confirming their privilege. We have seen that each race has its own style of beauty, and we know that it is natural to man to admire each characteristic point in his domestic animals, dress, ornaments, and personal appearance. When carried a little beyond the average, 
If the several foregoing propositions be admitted, and I cannot see that they are doubtful, it would be an inexplicable circumstance if the selection of the more attractive women by the more powerful men of each tribe, who would rear on an average a greater number of children, did not, after the lapse of many generations, somewhat modify the character of the tribe. When a foreign breed of our domestic animals is introduced into a new country, or when a native breed is long and carefully attended to, either for use or ornament, it is found after several generations to have undergone a greater or less amount of change whenever the means of comparison exist. This follows from unconscious selection during a long series of generations, that is, the preservation of the most approved individuals without any wish or expectation of such a result on the part of the breeder. So again, if during many years two careful breeders rear animals of the same family. So again, if during many years two careful breeders rear animals of the same family and do not compare them together or with a common standard, the animals are found to have become, to the surprise of their owners, slightly different. Each breeder has impressed, as von Nathusiast well expresses it, the character of his own mind, his state taste and judgment on his animals. What reason, then, can be assigned why similar results show not follow from the long-continued selection of the most admired women by those men of each tribe who were able to rear the greatest number of children? This would be conscious selection, for an effect would be produced, independently of any wish or expectation on the part of the men who preferred certain women to others. Let us suppose the members of a tribe, practicing some form of marriage, to spread over an unoccupied continent. They would soon split up into distinct hordes, separated from each other by various barriers, and still more effectually by the incessant wars between all barbarous nations. The hordes would thus be exposed to slightly different conditions and habits of life, and would sooner or later come to differ in some small degree. As soon as this occurred, each isolated tribe would form, for itself, a slightly different standard of beauty. An ingenious writer argues, from a comparison of the pictures of Raphael, Rubens, and modern French artists, that the idea of beauty is not absolutely the same even throughout Europe. And then unconscious selection would come into action, through the more powerful and leading men preferring certain women to others. Thus the differences between the tribes, at first very slight, would gradually and inevitably be more or less increased. End of section 3. Recording by John Hogarth, Beijing, China.